I'm Rosie Goldsmith. It's Wednesday the 17th of February and this is Guardian Daily. Today, how the arrest of the Taliban's second-in-command shows a new spirit of cooperation between Pakistani and American intelligence services. Until now, Pakistan has been seen to have a fairly ambiguous relationship with the Afghan Taliban. Particularly, American officials have accused Pakistan of playing something of a double role. Broadcaster Ray Gosling admits he killed his former lover, who was suffering from a terminal illness. But why speak out now? Uh, such a controversial subject, and clearly there have been so many other events recently which have brought the subject of assisted dying um, and suicide to the fore that anything on this subject is, is clearly going to convulse the news media really but but it's something on which I think everybody has an opinion and feels quite deeply about. Scientist Robert Winston on the unforeseen dangers of new technologies. One of the biggest technologies which has been the most threatening but also the most needed in order to develop our civilization, has been the use of coal and a landmark study into the health and welfare of 12,000 children of the millennium is published today. In Afghanistan, the NATO mission Operation Mushtarak to take control of Taliban strongholds in the south continues unabated and successfully, according to Coalition Command. The capture across the border in Pakistan of the Taliban's number two, Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada, has given a further boost to NATO morale and potentially delivered a serious blow to Taliban operations. Declan Walsh, The Guardian's Pakistan correspondent, told me how Barada was captured in Karachi and why it's seen as a major coup, particularly for US intelligence services. The details are still fairly sketchy, but as we understand, um, a joint team of the CIA and Pakistani intelligence, that's known as the ISI, um, carried out a raid on a location in Karachi somewhere between seven and ten days ago, and they picked up Mullah Brader. Some of the indications I've had is that he may have been picked up from a, from a madrasa on the outskirts of the city, and um, that's not confirmed yet. Um, but it certainly seems that Mullah Brader was hiding in Karachi, was picked up, has been taken into uh, Pakistani custody, is being interrogated by people from both countries. And according to some leaks that are coming out of Washington, he has already started to provide some intelligence about the activities of the Taliban, but that is not yet confirmed. Is, does this signify new cooperation between the United States and Pakistani intelligence? Yes, I think in a way this that's probably the most interesting element of, of, of this arrest. Um, until now, Pakistan has been seen to have a fairly ambiguous relationship with the Afghan Taliban. Particularly American officials have accused Pakistan of playing something of a double role, of uh, secretly, if not um, assisting the Taliban, uh, sheltering within its borders, then at least turning a blind eye to them because uh, Pakistan may see the Taliban as a sort of proxy force uh, to exert its influence in Afghanistan, if not now, then at some point in the future. The arrest of Mullah Brader, you know, both with the cooperation of the ISI and in a major city like Karachi, um, certainly sends a very different signal. It seems to suggest that Pakistani policy uh, towards the Afghan Taliban is now very much closer to that of Western countries than it has been um, at any time in the last number of years. And there's a much more determined push on the part of the United States now. I mean, the 30,000 more U.S. troops are due uh, to Afghanistan. I mean, the U.S. is saying the U.S. is running out of patience. 
It is. It's, it's, it's running out of patience and it's running out of time on both sides of the border. In Afghanistan, um, those troops are committed, so it needs to start showing results, particularly in advance of the drawdown of troops, which President Obama has said will start in the summer of 2011, even though we don't yet know the numbers involved. And in Pakistan, um, you know, the, the Americans are very aware that the Taliban use the borderlands of Pakistan uh, as a rear base to shelter, to organize, to plan attacks. Um, and they have shown themselves to be increasingly uh, impatient with that sanctuary. Um, and some diplomatic sources I've spoken to here in Islamabad have suggested that in recent weeks, since the Americans have started to make threats about extending their campaign of drone attacks to Balochistan, that's where most of the Taliban leadership are supposed to have been hiding. Um, as those threatened drone strikes have been made public, uh, the Taliban leadership have been moving to Karachi uh, in order to try and get lost in that very large city, um, and that this indeed may be one of the factors that led to the arrest of Mullah Brader. Mullah Brader is referred to as um, the number two, Taliban number two um, in the leadership. Tell us more about him. I mean, what do we know about him? He's someone who's thought to be between his uh, mid-30s and 40s. Um, he is effectively the Taliban's leading military commander. Um, under, under the Taliban leader Mullah Omar, there are several deputy commanders who take part, who, who, who are in charge of different functions for the Taliban. Some are in charge of coordinating the Taliban's shadow governors in provinces across Afghanistan. But Mullah Brader seemed to be someone who was in charge of day-to-day -day fighting, particularly in the southern provinces where the fighting is heaviest, such as Helmand, Kandahar, Zabal. Um, so he's basically considered to be the, the Taliban's military commander. Declan Walsh speaking to me from Islamabad. And you can read more on that story at guardian.co.uk slash Pakistan. Elsewhere on The Guardian's website... Hello, I'm Rosie Swash, and this week, Music Weekly will be with you a little bit earlier than usual. Myself, Alexis Petridis and Kitty Empire will be dissecting last night's Brit Awards, and you can hear that at guardian.co.uk slash music a little bit later today. The broadcaster and documentary maker Ray Gosling has admitted killing a former partner who was terminally ill. He told the BBC's Today programme how he'd agreed to smother his lover who was living with AIDS if his suffering became too intense. It was in the early uh, period of AIDS when uh, things were very difficult. Uh, he wasn't my partner. He was my bit on the side, if you want. And uh, we had an agreement that he, he got AIDS in another country, but he came back and we, we, we carried on having some sort of sex, I think. And we, we worked it out anyway. We, it was full of laughter and full of love and all that sort of thing. And we, we got bad, really, really bad, in terrible, terrible pain. And there was no cure. I mean, I said to the doctors, anything be done? No. Can you relieve the pain? Not any more than we can. Not any more than we're doing. And we had this agreement that if it got like that, I would um, end his life. And uh, that's what I did. The Guardian's Esther Adley joins me now. Esther, what's been the reaction to these claims from Ray Gosling? 
Well, it's fair to say it's caused something of a stir. I mean, there are the predictable reactions, which is not to diminish them, but there are the reactions that one can imagine and and anticipate on this kind of extraordinary admission, really, that he had suffocated his lover at some point, we imagine, in the early 80s. I mean, clearly the groups who have particular positions on assisted dying have um, expressed their concerns um, on both sides of that argument. But, I mean, it's also caused a, a really big media stir today, it's fair to say. Ray Gosling's been much in demand and has been appearing on television repeatedly, explaining a little about the um, the event that he described, but really trying not to say too much more. He said that even under torture, he's not going to reveal the name of the man who he says that he killed or really any further details about that. So I think this is a kind of such a controversial subject and clearly there have been so many other events recently which have brought the subject of assisted dying um, and suicide to the fore that anything on this subject is is clearly going to convulse the news media really but but it's something on which I think everybody has an opinion and feels quite deeply about so um, no surprise really that it's been such a big a big story. There are huge legal and moral issues but why do you think that Ray Gosling has chosen to come out with this now. I mean, it was part of a, a film made for um, the BBC, a short film made for the BBC. But why do you think he chose that film to do this? Well, that's a, a really interesting question. I mean, having confessed or admitted that he has killed someone, technically he is potentially laying himself open to criminal charges. Um, helping someone to die in this way could potentially you know, lead to a long prison sentence, although whether, in fact, he can ever be prosecuted, especially if he won't reveal the name of the dead man is is um, difficult to say. I mean, the, the the film that he made is a very moving piece of um, documentary about death and dying in which he interviews a number of people who have terminally ill relatives and sort of muses on his own coming death at some point. And the film finishes where he visits the grave of his long-term partner, Bryn Alsop, who had been his, his live-in partner for 30 years, really, and um, he says, well, you know, this is where I'll end up. You know, Bryn's at the bottom of this grave. I'll be on top of him. And, and the only words that are going to be on the grave soon are Ray Gosling dead. So it's a very affecting piece of uh, piece of TV. And um, he's clearly moved by it. And, and that was the point at which he said he felt in integrity he had to share this detail since he'd been asking others who he interviewed to be um, as open with their own personal stories. Esther Adley there. And there's more on that story at guardian.co.uk slash media. Also on the Guardian's website today, our art critic Adrian Searle takes us on an audio tour of a new exhibition at London's Gagosian Gallery. It's called Crash, and it's a tribute to author J.G. Ballard. Here's a taster. A whole pink, luscious, lovely pig here. His mouth is opening and closing, his tongue lolling, asleep, breathing. And his little piggy, leggy-weggies are kind of skating about as if he were dreaming. Do pigs dream? I bet they do. And this is a Paul McCarthy sculpture, and the whole pig is sort of set up. This luscious, huge, life-size, pink, naked pig is set up on a sort of life support system of wires and hydraulics that just works away endlessly. Let's see if we can go to the movies. This seems to be the way, the way in. There's a tacky old cinema here. So 
I should turn the lights on. Ah, carpet underfoot, musty, dirty smell. Yeah, and you can see through the doors, these old wooden doors. This really is a, a displaced interior by Mike Nelson. And I'm not entirely sure which way is out. There's lots and lots of doorways, but uh, uh, that was a good movie, wasn't it? I have my money back now. Mind your step, because on the floor are little shiny droplets. They're all contact lenses, dozens of them. You could crunch them underfoot. Uh. I'm paying homage, really, aren't I? Getting down on my hands and knees in front of this pulled elver. Adrian Searle's private view. To listen in full, go to guardian.co.uk slash private view and be warned, it gets explicit. For every act of creation and innovation, there exists the potential also for our undoing. That's the concept behind the new book from Robert Winston. The Labour Life peer and TV presenter may be well known also for his giant moustache, but he's first and foremost a scientist. In Bad Ideas, he lays out an alternative history of science and technology and the unintended consequences of progress. He told Guardian Tech Weekly's Alex Krotoski that the current climate change debate is a good illustration of the ideas he examines in his book. I suppose one of the biggest technologies which has been the most threatening, but also the most needed in order to develop our civilization, has been the use of coal. Um, coal is really dangerous. Uh, as well. But without coal, we wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution, we wouldn't have had the shipping we have, we wouldn't have had the communications we have, we wouldn't have actually, ha actually had the healthcare that we've had, we certainly wouldn't have the better environment that we have and the cities that we have. Now, um, the issue, of course, with coal, obviously there's the issue of global warming, but it's sometimes forgotten, for example, that coal mines in this country alone have killed far more people uh, than all the nuclear power stations accidents put together, for example. In fact, you could probably just point to one coal mine accident, you know, a big one, um, uh, and, uh, and recognize that. And that actually, coal-fired emissions are still spewing out sometimes radioactive material, which is completely ignored um, in a way that, of course, would not be possible or legal within a wind scale, for example, in, within a power station that is nuclear. So there are issues like that which I think are, are really quite profound and very long-term. And your question asks, I think, a very difficult question which I don't think I can answer. Could people have possibly foreseen those consequences when they started digging for the black gold? I think the answer, well, actually coal isn't quite black gold, it's oil is black gold, isn't it? But anyhow, you know, the, the black stuff. Um, no, they probably couldn't have done. But in the history of oil, we knew 60, 80, probably almost 100 years ago, that oil was much more dangerous than we were prepared to admit. And the pursuit of oil um, is really a very interesting history, which I go into in some detail in the book. And it was very obvious, even before the Second World War, that 
oil wasn't a particularly safe medium, but it was portable. It was extremely good for shipping. Um, it was much easier to fight a naval war with, for example, than using a coal-fired cruiser. Um, and had all sorts of advantages um, that it was actually cheaper to extract and essentially less risky. One final question, and very briefly. Uh, again, it comes from Twitter, and I think it's a... It, it ties in nicely with a lot of the themes that we've that we've drawn out. Uh, Nicole Brummer says, how can we do without new technology in fighting problems that are facilitated by new technology? And he uses the example of climate change. Yes, well, he's dead right about that. And of course, that's the argument that Alec Perez made in the Ruth lectures three or four years ago when he argued that we shouldn't be frightened of technology because technology actually would solve the technological pro- problems that we create. And I listened to that with raised eyebrows. I thought that that wasn't a very good reason for creating problems, actually. And I sort of did wonder about his viewpoint. I mean, Alec um, is a very, very great uh, scientist and engineer. Um, But I don't think that absolves us from the problems of trying to minimize the effects of the technology ab initio. Um, But yes, your your, your Twitter correspondent must be right. I mean, clearly, I I think we have to be optimistic. I think we have to assume that we're not going to be killed by climate change. I don't think we are. I mean, I think there are all sorts of ways around this. First of all, um, the whole notion of the anthropogenic um, stuff is interesting. I mean, to what extent that's important. Um, uh, And if it really occurred, it occurred with a much earlier technology than coal, probably when we started doing agriculture 11,000 years ago. It was the first first stage in, in climate change. And actually... One of the things the book does say is that climate change is something that we've battled against really since the earliest civilizations, that the earliest civilizations were threatened by climate change, and that's quite interesting too. So history goes round in circles. I, 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 let me just say, finally, I'm optimistic. Robert Winston speaking to Alex Grotowski. And you can hear more of that interview at guardian.co.uk slash techweekly. A major UK-wide study into 12,000 children born between 2000 and 2002 is launched today. It's called the Millennium Cohort Study and has been carried out by researchers at University College London. It covers the health, education, lifestyle, employment and income of families with children from all ethnic backgrounds and all parts of the country. And the research into the reasons for obesity among young children has delivered some surprising results, according to Lucy Griffiths, one of the senior researchers. This study examined the weight of over 12,000 five-year-olds from the Millennium Cohort Study, which is the fourth nationwide cohort study in the UK. And in analysis of data from the study, we've examined a number of risk factors for overweight and obesity. We found that 21% of the children were overweight and obese at age five, and that black children were at greatest risk of now, this condition. Now, the fact that you bring up um, black and Caribbean children so early, uh, this is obviously a major finding for you. Tell me a little bit more about this. Um, well, this could be explained by a number of individual um, cultural or environmental factors, but further analysis is currently being conducted to examine why these children may be at greater risk. Additionally, the study used body mass index to define overweight, um, which is calculated using weight and height. And whilst this is a standard measure used in other surveys, it doesn't distinguish between fat mass and fat-free mass, which is, for example, muscle. Um, So further research is therefore needed using alternative measurements of body composition. Lucy, can I ask you, this is going back a little bit, I just want to to ask you, what, what has been for you, Lucy Griffiths, the most 
interesting finding in your research? Um, certainly, our findings um, of the relationship between ethnicity and overweight are very interesting. Um, we, we've also found that black babies in the cohort at a younger age experience the highest weight gain between birth and nine months of age, and now we're seeing they're at greater risk of obesity at three and five years. However, um, as explained earlier, we do need to investigate these groups further and we need to examine different measures of body composition. So this is the beginning of your research rather than the end? Yes. Lucy Griffiths outlining some of the findings of the Millennium Cohort Study launched today. That's all for today. Guardian Daily was produced by Phil Maynard. I'm Rosie Goldsmith and thank you for listening.